0: I read recently of a hurried pastor who parked his car in a no-parking zone, but left the following note stuck underneath the windshield. The note read, I have circled this block ten times and have found no parking space. I have an urgent appointment to keep. So, forgive us our trespasses. Two hours later, the pastor returned to his car only to find a parking ticket neatly inserted beneath the windshield wiper, and beneath the ticket, another note affixed to the first one. It read as follows I have circled this block for 10 years, and if I don't give you a ticket, I lose my job. And then, in quotations, lead us not into temptation. It's hard sometimes, isn't it, to, to really see or to find the appropriate balance or relationship between grace on the one hand and accountability on the other, between the desire for mercy and the need for a certain amount of judgment to keep us honest— Or as the Bible so often puts it, the need for love and for truth. Someone has said that love and truth are a little bit like sodium and chlorine. Sodium is an extremely active element found naturally only in combined form with other elements. It always links itself to some other element. Chlorine, on the other hand, is, well, it's that poisonous gas that gives bleach its offensive odor. But when sodium and chlorine are combined, the result is wonderful. It becomes, of course, sodium chloride, table salt, the substance we use to preserve our meat and to bring out the marvelous flavor in food. If you think about it, love and truth. Work a bit like that too. Truth without love can be something of a dangerous and noxious substance, can it not? It can burn and offend without doing much good at all. For no matter how true truth is, without love it, tempering its chemistry, Truth tends to discourage people sometimes instead of to challenge them, to break the spirit rather than activating the will. And unless someone receiving that truth knows that we're speaking the truth in love to them rather than to them in fear or anger or pride, then the message will often be received as destructive criticism instead of the constructive critique that seasons the soul. That is why I suppose when he speaks to the churches at the end of the age, Jesus takes pains to identify first love as the primary Christian virtue. A church or an individual that is filled first and foremost with the love of Jesus Christ, will be able to reconcile conflicts and resolve relationships and renew hopes and vision in a gracious manner that convinces people and reminds ourselves that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. That was something that the early Christians at Ephesus apparently needed to remember and to do some repenting over and then to resume living out wholeheartedly. As parents and friends, as church members and mentors and servants out in the marketplace of life, sometimes we need to be reminded of the primacy of love, open ourselves afresh to the inpouring provision of that grace that it might flow over the edges of the container of our lives and and temper all the truth that we share with others. A lack of love, however, isn't always the most pressing problem that an individual Christian or even a whole church faces. Sometimes the, the greatest need is actually at the other end of the spectrum. And the Christians at Pergamum, for example well, they apparently had the love ingredient in sufficient measure. But if they were going to be the salt of the earth that Christ had called them to be, well, then their love, perhaps like yours and mine sometimes, also had to be blended with a bit more of the truth. The city of Pergamum was located on the same postal circuit as the city of Ephesus and Smyrna and the other seven churches to which the book of Revelation is addressed. Like the city of Athens, it had a spectacular acropolis that rose up some 1,000 feet above the plain and was visible from miles and miles around. And the city had first gained notoriety way back in 133 B.C., when the Roman Empire had decided to make it its official capital for the Roman province of Asia. What followed in the years to come was a series of deeper investments in that city's life as Pergamum became the center of the official imperial cult. That is the tradition that increasingly grew up as Rome grew more powerful, of celebrating Caesar as not just an ordinary man, but as a divine himself. In addition to a succession of magnificent temples that were erected to honor Rome's Emperors atop that Acropolis, Pergamum boasted an immense altar that had been literally carved out of the rock of the Great Mount that was dedicated to the god Zeus the Savior. It had as well an elegant temple to Athena, the goddess of war, and to Dionysius, the god of wine, and to Asclepius, the god of healing. In that way, Pergamum became a place of devotion for for all who put their faith in power and pleasure and medical science as keys to human hope. Jesus called this center of misplaced worship, this place that had taken some of the great instruments that God had given to humanity for his service and elevated them to the to the place of idol. He called this mountaintop the throne of Satan in his letter to the church. In our time, we don't seem to take quite so seriously the almost cultic devotion that the people in our time sometimes still give to the gods of power and pleasure and biotechnology. But it's apparent that the Pergamum Pergamumese, Christians, did take that very, very seriously. And Jesus was moved by their devotion. We read in this passage, Jesus' own words, that you did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Somehow the believers in Pergamum had remained bold in their declaration of their primary love for Jesus Christ as Lord, in spite of all the other pressure around them, to the extent that when they were required to file in front of of the bust of the emperor once a year, as Christians increasingly were, and drop some incense into the altar fire and say those three words, "Caesar es curios," Caesar is Lord. Many had refused to do so, and to make an example of them, one of them, they took Antipas and put him to death. But the Pergamum Christians had stood fast. And yet, as they had been publicly so demonstrative in their faith, refusing to cave to the pressures that pressed in from around them, there was nonetheless something going on within their circle that was of increasing concern to the Lord. Jesus puts it this way. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, and likewise you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, to understand this particular challenge of our Lord requires paging back in the Scriptures to an episode in the history of Israel, as recorded in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. There we read about someone named Balaam, a prophet, actually, in the employ of King Balak of Moab, a nation that repeatedly tried to stop Israel's colonization of the promised land. Unable to defeat Israel in an external battle, Balaam, the prophet of Balak, had hit upon a extremely insidious and clever plan to try and undermine Israel from the inside out. He organized the young women of Moab to go and seduce the soldiers of Israel. And many, over the course of subsequent years, surrendered the purity of their faith by joining these enchanting women and taking part in the Moabites' idolatrous practices and immoral feasts. And slowly a subtle and progressive doctrinal and moral slide began, the ultimate devastation of which would not be seen for many, many years. As near as scholars can determine what Balaam was to ancient Israel, these Nicolaitans were to the early church. That is, through subtle efforts, they infiltrated the church's life and began to quietly modify certain core doctrines of the church's belief system. They began to poison the purity of the faith from the inside. They taught, for example, that Since Christ has set us free from the penalty of sin, we should really no longer be quite so uptight about our moral behaviors. And they stress that because Christ had redeemed us from the weight of the law, we were no longer under the law but grace. In fact, they suggest that it's okay to to do a little bit of what the Bible might call sin because that's way that's how god's grace will will just continue to abound towards us in forgiveness in some ways that kind of thinking remains alive in the church of jesus christ today there are those within the body that continue to encourage us to to lighten up in the name of love and grace and because our faith is, is so deeply dependent upon that grace, we, we're open to this teaching. As they say, hey, we're all human, and God knows that about us. And He's not really going to, to, to demand things of us that go profoundly against our nature. And He's certainly not unreasonable and he's definitely infinitely patient. So, so what if we color outside the lines a little bit? What if we gossip and backbite a bit? Hey, everyone does. What's the big deal if we tell a few off-color jokes around the golf course or at the office? come on, how much real harm is there in a little good-natured gambling among friends or the occasional expletive not deleted or some old-fashioned rage now and then? It's not good to keep all those feelings inside. Hey, isn't Christ, after all, the Lord of loving grace? So let's cut ourselves and each other a little more slack. Have you ever heard that sort of teaching? Have you ever heard it escape from your own lips? Or echo within the quarters of your own soul? I know I have. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said that truth is beautiful without a doubt. But so are lies. And this thought that grace and love is all there is has to rank among the most attractive of all lies. And sometimes the lie finds a place, at least in me, because I so heartily believe in the God of love. But you know, the Scriptures challenge us to see a larger picture than that of this God to see that he's one of truth as well as grace. And in Jude chapter 1, verse 4, we're warned to beware of godless people who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. I believe that we in the church today have got to be doubly careful that we aren't such godless people ourselves. For if love is the first virtue of a healthy person or people, then maybe uncritical tolerance of sin is the last virtue of a corrupt soul or society. The church is and must continue to be a place where we bond together to grow toward greater health, where it's okay for sinners to come, to be met by God where they are, but he never leaves us where we are. It's always his desire to call us on, to walk holding us with the hand of love on the road of his truth, And that grace that he offers us must always be tempered in our own lives by a knowledge that his calling to us is to a higher standard. And that that calling doesn't go away at any point in our lives, but that his voice continues to ask us to take another step in obedience to the truth. The truth is that Jesus calls each of us, no matter how long we've been believers, to be people who pray fervently for a continual change in our sinful attitudes, to repent actively for misdeeds, to pursue zealously the purity of character and conduct that he exemplifies for us. He asks us to align our lives to the plumb line of His Word. And so, from time to time, it's helpful to ask ourselves how's the alignment going? How's our growth in obedience to His truth? Are we becoming more and more like Him? and and striving to respond to that grace in obedience to his word. Sometimes the first step in making some progress in that direction lies in simply admitting to God, to ourselves, and sometimes to one another that we're still pretty badly out of line and that we know we've got a ways to go And sometimes people have the courage to do that. At a college in Fort Wayne, Indiana some years ago, the speaker for Morning Chapel suddenly canceled his appearance at the last moment. The president of the college was in disarray, didn't know what to do, and desperate for something to fill the service, President Wesley Barrick called upon anyone who was just willing to share a word of testimony about what God was doing in their life. There was a terribly awkward silence in the place, as I imagine there might be if I said the same thing here. But then after a long pause, a student somewhere out towards the back stood up. And the young man who stood there began in stumbling words to confess that he felt like he'd lost his sense of direction in life, that he needed to find some kind of a purpose for living, higher than just getting into grad school. He sat down, and a moment later, a young woman stood up. She began to tell of her secret eating disorder how she'd been haunted by it for years, kept it a secret from all of these put-together Christian classmates and told of her aching desire to gain some control of the problem. And then a- another student stood up, and then another one, and another one, until before long the place was simply a buzz with people confessing their need for love and how far away they still knew they were from God's truth. And before anyone knew it, five hours had gone by. When interviewed later on the reason for this incredible outburst of confession, one student allegedly said, I simply got tired of the sham. I've been here three years... And I figure it's about time I got straightened out. Sometimes it's good to get to a place like that. It's good to get to that point where we recognize that we're still a long way off. And rededicate ourselves to trying to go further in obedience to Christ. Submitting our words, our attitudes, our resources, our behaviors, our jobs, our emotions to his lordship. Sometimes it's good to say, you know, I, I do okay in the receiving love part. But I need, to, I need to go a lot further in the responding and the being obedient to truth part. For if salt loses its saltiness... And it takes both. What good will it be, said Jesus. And please don't forget, he adds, that you are the salt of the earth. Please pray with me. Gracious God, I I come before you as as one member of this church that knows how far away I still am from living in full obedience to your truth, to your calling, to your lordship. And I ask your forgiveness this day, Lord, for all of the many ways in which my my pride and my ambition and my insensitivity and my hurried life offend you, hurt your cause, wound and irritate others. I ask your forgiveness, Lord, for these and other ways in which I fall short of my calling to be a dad and a husband, a friend that really is there for others. And I ask you, Lord God, to to take control of my words and my emotions and my deeds and my money and my time in a deeper way in the days to come. And Lord God, if there are any others in this congregation who, who are aware of that need as well, and I pray that you will receive their confession this day and grant us the joy of going forth anew. For we ask these things in the loving and saving name of him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.